Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties Podcast, where we are discussing the Federalist Papers. Today, we will talk about Federalist 33. We often begin these podcasts with three big ideas concerning the essay under examination. Here are three big ideas about Federalist 33. Big Idea 1. In Federalist 33, Hamilton discussed the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, dismissing concerns about it offered by opponents of the Constitution by arguing that the Constitution would work in much the same way without it. Big Idea 2 concerns a different clause of the Constitution, the Supremacy Clause. It's a different clause, but a similar argument. Hamilton argued that its presence in the Constitution had little substantive effect. Big Idea 3 focuses on an argument we have seen in other essays of the Federalist Papers. Hamilton's belief that concerns about the dangers that the Union might pose to the states, offered by opponents of the Constitution, did not account for the danger that individual states might pose to the Union. Federalist 33 is a continuation of the discussion of taxation in Federalist 30, 31, and 32, although there is in Federalist 33 little direct discussion of taxation. Rather, the primary focus of Federalist 33 is on two elements of the Constitution relevant to the powers of the national government in general, including the power to tax. First, the Necessary and Proper Clause, and second, the Supremacy Clause. Perhaps unexpectedly, Hamilton asserted that these clauses serve no independent substantive function in the Constitution. Quote, It may be affirmed with perfect confidence that the constitutional operation of the intended government would be precisely the same if these clauses were entirely obliterated, as if they were repeated in every article. They are only declaratory of a truth which would have resulted, by necessary and unavoidable implication, from the very act of constituting a federal government and vesting it with certain specified powers." End quote. Before getting too far into Hamilton's argument, it would be good to look directly at the Necessary and Proper Clause in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 begins with the phrase, quote, the Congress shall have the power, end quote. Then, after listing several of the powers of Congress, the section ends with this power of Congress, quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof, end quote. There's been a great deal of discussion, not least by the courts, about what this might mean. But one thing to focus on for our purposes is the relationship between means and ends. What seems to be at stake here is this. There are many legislative ends that are defined in the Constitution. Insofar as the ends are commanded, as a general matter, so too are the means. Something like this kind of logic is the focus of Hamilton's argument. Insofar as people were worried about the Constitution because the Necessary and Proper Clause seemed too sweeping a claim of authority, Hamilton seems to have believed that such worries were overblown because the Necessary and Proper Clause would, on his account, add little substantively to the Constitution. Quote, the Declaration itself, though it may be chargeable with tautology or redundancy, is at least perfectly harmless, end quote. Put differently, if Congress is told that it has the power to do something, then one must believe that it may do those things that are necessary to engage in that power. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, This simple train of inquiry furnishes us at once with a test by which to judge of the true nature of the clause complained of. It conducts us to this palpable truth, 
that a power to lay and collect taxes must be a power to pass all laws necessary and proper for the execution of that power. And what does the unfortunate and calumniated provision in question do more than declare the same truth, to wit, that the national legislature, to whom the power of laying and collecting taxes had been previously given, might, in the execution of that power, pass all laws necessary and proper to carry it into effect, end quote. Now, you can probably see a logical follow-up question. The Constitution was created by people intentionally. Why would people intentionally add a clause that is redundant, even if harmless? Hamilton's answer was that this was likely best understood as a form of caution, making extra sure, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, The convention probably foresaw what it has been a principal aim of these papers to inculcate, that the danger which most threatens our political welfare is that the state governments will finally sap the foundations of the Union, and might therefore think it necessary, in so cardinal a point, to leave nothing to construction. Hamilton then turned to another potential question, because what seems necessary and proper to one may not seem so to another. Quoting Hamilton, quote, But it may be again asked, Who is to judge of the necessity and propriety of the laws to be passed for executing the powers of the Union? I answer, first, that this question arises as well and as fully upon the simple grant of those powers as upon the declaratory clause. And I answer, in the second place, that the national government, like every other, must judge in the first instance of the proper exercise of its powers and its constituents in the last. Hamilton turned later in the paragraph to a few examples, but one thing to note, as has been noted in other essays in the Federalist Papers, is the role of the people as articulated by Hamilton. One way to think about the last sentence just quoted from Hamilton, the government judges such a question and makes a decision in the first instance, and its constituents then evaluate and judge that decision. So that is Hamilton on the Necessary and Proper Clause. Let's turn to Big Idea 2, looking at Hamilton on the Supremacy Clause. Once again, it's a good idea to stop and take a look at the text of the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution, quoting the Constitution, quote, This Constitution and all the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding." End quote. Hamilton makes a case here similar to the case he made about the Necessary and Proper Clause. Because government is about rulership, the law is supreme just in view of being a law. Quote, a law, by the very meaning of the term, includes supremacy. It is a rule which those to whom it is prescribed are bound to observe. This results from every political association. If individuals enter into a state of society, the laws of that society must be the supreme regulator of their conduct." End quote. As with the Necessary and Proper Clause, Hamilton pointed to the cautiousness of those at the convention as the explanation of why an otherwise potentially superfluous clause was added to the Constitution. Quote, it will not, I presume, have escaped observation that it expressly confines this supremacy to laws made pursuant to the Constitution, which I mentioned merely as an instance of caution in the Convention, since that limitation would have been to be understood, though it had not been expressed." End quote. Furthermore, 
Hamilton was at pains to remind his readers that the Supremacy Clause should not be thought to allow violations of the Constitution by the federal government. Quote, Though a law, therefore, laying a tax for the use of the United States would be supreme in its nature, and could not legally be opposed or controlled, yet a law for abrogating or preventing the collection of a tax laid by the authority of the state, unless upon imports and exports, would not be the supreme law of the land, but a usurpation of power not granted by the Constitution. End quote. Big Idea 3 refers to an idea that has been described in different ways in other essays of the Federalist Papers. Hamilton's views on the potential for conflict between the national government and the states, and his assertion that the threat posed by the states to the national government is underestimated. Looking once at a claim from Hamilton referred to a few minutes ago in discussing the status at the convention of the Necessary and Proper Clause, we find Hamilton saying this, quote, The convention probably foresaw what it has been a principal aim of these papers to inculcate, that the danger which most threatens our political welfare is that the state governments will finally sap the foundations of the Union, and might therefore think it necessary, in so cardinal a point, to leave nothing to construction." End quote. Don't forget, one way to characterize opposition to the Constitution during ratification is to point to a general fear that the Constitution might make it possible for the national government to threaten, undermine, or otherwise weaken the state governments. Hamilton argued against this in different ways, depending on the issue in question. But as noted above, he also offered a general claim in opposition to this, that one must recall the danger that state governments might pose to the national government. We typically close these podcasts with a brief reference to the relevance of the essay under review to politics today and tomorrow. Now, one thing that Hamilton did not know would happen was the adoption of the Bill of Rights. There will be more to say later in this podcast series about the Bill of Rights as a general matter, but it is worth thinking in a general way about the Tenth Amendment in the context of the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Supremacy Clause. These two clauses may look as if they either confer much power on the federal government or confirm that the federal government has much power. The Tenth Amendment seems to be a limitation on the power of the federal government, quoting the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. Quote, Powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. End quote. Now, I think there is quite a bit to say about this in the vein of constitutional law, and that is a bit outside the scope of this podcast. But one thing seems apparent. Recalling Hamilton's argument that the Supremacy Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause should be thought of as potentially redundant elements of the cautious approach of those at the Constitutional Convention, the adoption of the Tenth Amendment might cut against the logic of Hamilton's argument, or it might be evidence of an abundance of caution on the part of those that endorse the Tenth Amendment. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties Podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit us at sunwater.org.